In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, I am so excited because I get to have my person on the show, my first ever real life breast cancer friend. Becky and I met almost 10 years ago now in 2014. And if you've been listening to The Burn for a while, or you have been a fan of Wildfire for a while, then you have heard Becky come up. She is where it all kind of started for me and where I learned how important it is to have people who get it in your life. So I am so excited to be welcoming Becky to The Burn for the first time ever. Becky is Becky to me, but to you all, her real name is Rebecca Hall, and she is a writer, editor, and former yoga instructor. She was diagnosed at 25 the first time around with breast cancer. At that time, it was stage three triple positive breast cancer, and then she was diagnosed with a metastatic reoccurrence at 29. She is joining me today from our shared hometown of Santa Cruz, and she has with her her sweet sidekick, Addie Dog. Hey, Becky, welcome to The Burn. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I know we're getting to do something we've never done together before, and it feels so uh, professional of us to do this together. I know, right? It really does. It's, it was crazy to hear you say that we've been friends for almost 10 years. I know. I have some questions around that, so we'll definitely dig into that. Um, okay. But yeah, it's always fun to make adult friends that that last. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. All right. So let's get into your story. Today, you are here to read a piece called Hair. This is a story that I published in the very first ever Wildfire magazine in 2016. That issue was called Phoenix. And then we published your story again in the Wildfire anthology called Igniting the Fire Within. After you read, we are going to chat. Those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Becky, I'll let you take it away. I am not one for long goodbyes. I wanted to just get it over with, to know that I was the one in control of saying farewell to my beautifully long locks, rather than bear a slow, painful witness to their gradual disappearance. I couldn't stand the thought of my lovely, healthy hair being tainted by poison, as would inevitably happen once the drugs entered my bloodstream and traveled to my hair follicles. If I couldn't spare my body the assault of chemotherapy, I at least wanted to spare my hair. I would shave it off myself. I was scheduled to start treatment two days after I finished my first quarter of veterinary school. So the weekend before finals, 
when all but the genius, insane, or pathologically confident were safely locked away studying day and night, I decided that my hair deserved one last night out on the town. My naturally wavy tresses wanted to be styled and straightened and tossed from side to side one final time. And who was I to deny such a request? I called my friends. Let's go out. No way. It's finals week. I need to study. Come on. It's my last weekend with hair. Pause. Fine. I was well aware of my blatant manipulation, but I did not care one bit. Sometimes the cancer card is for playing. I had spent the past few weeks both falling asleep and waking up crying, but that evening my despair morphed into a manic state of determination to have fun. This was my last weekend with hair. It had to be amazing. We went out for sushi and sake bombs. As the evening progressed, I couldn't shake the sadness that everything I did was the last time I would do it with my hair. This is my last night to feel girly, I thought. I was convinced that being bald would make me look fat and boyish. No matter how hard I tried to have fun, I couldn't stop myself from seeing everything through this last supper lens. The night became clouded with a heavy sense of impending doom. I started to doubt my decision. Maybe I should wait and see what happens once I start the chemo, I thought. Maybe I'll get lucky and it won't fall out. The next day, no longer absorbed in my nighttime revelries, I realized that the anticipation of saying goodbye to my brunette beauties was starting to consume me. Rather than taking note of every last event with hair, I needed to just shave it off. If I hadn't been completely sure of my decision before, I was now. A few days later, I headed back home to my parents' house for winter break. Three of my childhood friends, Alexis, Stephanie, and Lauren, offered to come over to hang out, and I was grateful for the company. The four of us had grown up together, but we hadn't gotten together as a group for years. Still, when I called each of them to tell them about the cancer, it was as if the past few years of distance and sporadic contact had never happened. They all headed down to Santa Cruz to see me. It was the day before my first chemo infusion. If I was going to shave my head, it was now or never. I hadn't warned any of them of my activity agenda for their visit, but once they arrived and I asked if they would help, they enthusiastically agreed. The house had a reverse floor plan with the main level on the second story and my bedroom below, allowing for a modicum of privacy. The four of us gathered in my downstairs bathroom while my parents sat upstairs in the living room watching American Idol, completely unaware of what was about to take place. I had been too scared to tell mom and dad that I was even thinking about shaving my head. I didn't want them to try to talk me out of it. And deep down, I hadn't been entirely sure that I would go through with it. If I chickened out, I didn't want to have to explain that I didn't have the courage. I had decided to donate my hair since it would no longer be any good to me. All of the organizations required hair to be neatly collected into a braid before being mailed in. For those with hair like mine that barely met the 8-inch length requirement, they recommended sectioning it out into lots of tiny braids to maximize the amount of hair that is long enough for a wig. The girls got to work braiding my hair. We sat on the floor drinking red wine, eating chocolate chip cookies, listening to the radio, and reminiscing about high school. 
We tried to lift the mood, and for a while, it worked. Remember that old decrepit golf cart we used to drive around the farm? I said to Alexis. Her family owned a stable where we all rode horses together. Oh my gosh, that thing was awesome. We felt like such badasses, she said, laughing. Yeah, right up until we decided to go off-roading in the middle of the night, in the middle of winter, and got stuck in the mud. What were we thinking? Your dad was so pissed. We all laughed. By the time the girls were done with their crisscrossing and rubber banding, I looked like a gangster rapper from the 80s with tiny braids popping out of my head in every direction. We took silly pictures of me trying to appear thuggish with my new do. It started to get late. As Lauren sneaked a look at the time, I knew that I was going to have to take the plunge. Everyone had a job to get to early the next morning, and Lauren and Alexis both had to drive over an hour back to San Francisco that evening. We were responsible young adults now, and our days of pulling all-nighters, off-roading, and golf carts were long gone. Realizing that we couldn't procrastinate the looming task at hand all night, I was no longer able to maintain my efforts to be upbeat. The mood shifted into a more honest, painful place. I'm never going to feel beautiful again, I told them. Who will I be without my hair, without my breasts? I'm single. I'm 25. What guy is going to want a bald, breastless, sick girl? I began to cry. But you have a great ass, Alexis tried to reassure me. Who needs boobs when you've got a butt like yours? I've always been jealous of your legs, Stephanie chimed in. The right outfit can definitely hide your chest, Lauren added. Short skirts and baggy sweaters are totally in right now. We'll go shopping. I left them for trying, but their words were no match for the terrifying truth that shaving my head was the beginning of the end, of who I was, and quite possibly, of my life. First the hair would go, then the eyebrows and eyelashes, then my breasts would follow suit. Odds were that I was going to lose at least one, and I didn't like the idea of being uniboobed any more than being boobless. What would be left of me? I had never consciously realized how much of my identity rested in the notion that I was attractive. I like to think of myself as more the sporty type than a girl consumed with looks. I don't even know how to put on eyeshadow. But now that I face saying goodbye to feeling pretty, I felt like I was losing one of the most important aspects of my identity. I can't do this, I told them. You are a warrior going into battle. Think of this as your preparatory ritual, Alexis said. Alexis's wild and crazy curls embodied the confidence and fearlessness that I loved so much about her. Coming from her with those gravity-defying twists and turns of hair, the cliched warrior metaphor worked. I felt a surge of determination and capitalized on it, unsure of how long it might last. I sat down in a chair facing the mirror. Just do it. Lauren picked up the scissors and snipped off the first braid. I had always envied Lauren's long, impossibly straight blonde hair, and now I watched as the owner of those beautiful golden locks cut off my hair, one braid at a time. I cried the entire time. After the last braid had been safely detached from my soon-to-be-toxic head, it was time to shave the rest. 
My horse clippers, which I normally use to trim my horse's shaggy winter coat, sat on the bathroom counter next to my pile of freshly cut braids. I had brought them home from the barn a few days earlier. Horse or human, clippers were clippers, and they were the only electric shavers I owned. I didn't even bother to clean the horse hair off of them. Just do it, I sobbed. Alexis flipped the clippers on and began to remove the remaining stubs of hair from my head. Will I always feel this way, so empty, so estranged? Ray Lamonte sang on the radio in his husky, soulful voice. To feel empty would have been a relief from what I was feeling. I was far from empty. I was filled to capacity with fear, and the pressure was palpable. I felt like one of those styrofoam cups they teach kids about in elementary school science class, the kind they lower into the ocean to demonstrate the power of deep-sea water pressure. The water pressure acts like the shrinking biscuit in Alice of Wonderland, crushing the cup from every angle into a miniature version of its former self. I could feel the pressure of my impending death weighing on every inch of my body and from every angle. The fear of dying, the grief of a life not yet lived, was crushing me. But I was not made of styrofoam. I was bones and flesh, and my body resisted the pressure, refusing to buckle under the weight. I had been submerged in this unrelenting oceanic pressure for weeks. And now, the music, the buzz of the clippers, the sounds of my friends quietly sobbing, it was all putting me over the edge. I felt like I was being lowered another few feet into the depths of the ocean. Even Stephanie, the most unshakable of the group with her fiercely dark brunette mane, was in tears. They stood around me in a circle, each taking a turn with the clippers to shave a different section of my head. I put my head down, covered my eyes, and cried into my hands. My chair was still facing the mirror, but I couldn't look up. I couldn't watch myself physically becoming what I had emotionally been for weeks, broken, scared. Here was the undeniable visual evidence that I was sick. I couldn't bear to see it. Thankfully, my friends knew to keep shaving until the job was done, no matter how hard I cried. I don't think I would have had it in me to say, just do it one more time. When they finished, I slowly raised my head and opened my bloodshot eyes. This was it. I was officially a cancer patient. Dude, Alexis said, your hair was holding you back. I examined my unevenly shaped head in the mirror, running my hands over the various lengths of soft, velvet-like stubble. The heavy-duty clippers designed for coarse horsehair didn't have a guard to regulate length, and they had been passed between three different pairs of shaky hands. Despite this less-than-uniform buzz cut, I was shocked to discover that Alexis was right. I did not look fat, and I did not look boyish. I looked good. I sat up a little bit taller as I stared at myself in the mirror, speechless. Alexis reached out and rubbed my head. Damn, you look hot. We took one last picture, this time of the four of us, me standing in the middle as my three childhood friends each laid a hand on my newly hairless head. For the first time in the five weeks since I had been diagnosed, I felt ready. 
I just shaved my head with a pair of horse clippers. I thought, I can do this. The next morning, I walked into the cancer center with my poorly shaven head held high. Oh, Becky. I love it. (laughs) Such a good story. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, let's take a little break. We'll let you get a sip of water and we'll hear a testimonial. And when we come back, we'll dig into it. Hi, friends. There is now a wildfire book in the world. It is a big, beautiful compilation of my favorite essays from Wildfire Magazine, spanning all the way back to our first ever issue in 2016, up to the summer of 2022. This book took years to create and is literally the resource I wish I had had when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. This book is called Igniting the Fire Within, and it's made up of 50 essays that really dig into the experience of having breast cancer in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Every stage of breast cancer is represented from DCIS to stage four, from all sorts of walks of life from all around the world. Our writers go deep and get vulnerable to heal their own experiences and to let others like you know that you're not alone you will find yourself within these pages. Get Igniting the Fire Within, stories of healing, hope, and humor inside today's young breast cancer community on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle now. Curl up with it today. Hi, my name is Anna Coleman, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 27. I was a newlywed ready to start my life and here came the big C. Now, it was a few years into dealing with my treatment and survivorship that I met April and learned about the Wildfire magazine. I then, in the years that followed, would have many opportunities to both read Wildfire magazine or write for Wildfire magazine and even share my story on the podcast. They have been so amazing in terms of helping me feel less alone, giving me a space to share my story and my unique struggles regarding mental health, fertility, and trauma related to cancer. And I'm just so grateful for the community that Wildfire has created for myself and all the women that will come beyond me. Thank you so much for the love, Anna. I love your testimonial. Thank you for that. All right, Becky, welcome back. And thank you again for reading your hair story to us. So, so good. Thank you. So I don't even know where to start. I know so much about you and about your story, um, but I, I, I think one of the main things I want people to know who are listening, and we are a podcast about telling breast cancer stories, but we're also a podcast about writing breast cancer stories. And one of the things that I love so much about your story is how visually appealing it is. And some people might not know that your story was turned into a short film by the same title, um, Hair. So I wonder if you could kind of tell the story of how that happened. Yeah. And that was a very, very exciting thing that happened in my life um, that came from, from journaling, really, is how it started. So I wrote this piece, and um, I felt proud of it. So I shared it online. And then one of my old childhood friends from the same group of friends, actually, um, who is now a very successful short film producer, director, 
Um, she read the piece online and contacted me and we hadn't been in touch for decades. So she contacted me totally out of the blue and said, I read your piece. I love it. I want to turn it into a short film. And then over the next year to two years, we, we did it. Um, well, Kareth, Kareth Lemon was the producer, director, and then I co-wrote the script with her and we titled it Bear, B-A-R-E. Um, and it, yeah, it was such a interesting and fun process from ad- adapting it into a script with her. And then she really did all the main work of the film, all the hiring and, but I got to like put my, in, you know, share my input to who I thought would be the best person to play each of my friends and playing me. And that was really fun. And I got to go down to LA for the actual shooting of the film, um, which was super fun and beyond set and everything. And then we, we put it up. Our goal was for this to be something for the breast cancer community free. We didn't want anybody to have to pay for it. We just wanted it to be a resource for the breast cancer community to help people feel like they aren't alone and that they're, this is a real source of grief. You know, it might seem superficial losing your hair, but it is heavy and it is deep. And we wanted people to know that they're not alone with that. Um, so it's still up online. If you go to bearshortfilm.com, you can see the whole thing. It's just, it's, I think it's eight minutes long, so it's not a huge time investment. Um, we got to show it at a couple film festivals, which was really fun. And yeah, it was, it was quite an experience. Yeah. Vicariously getting to experience it through you. It was such an exciting time. And we did a little showing of it here in Santa Cruz, which was really fun. And um, I remember doing a little Q&A and some of your friends who were seeing themselves played by actors came and yeah, it was really surreal and really, really fun experience. Yeah. I remember um, at that, that film showing that we did, we did it as a fundraiser and um lauren one of the characters in the story came and she sat on a q a panel with me afterwards and it was so fun to have her there and um kind of let her experience some of the some of the excitement around it you know because she was there for the like heaviness of the actual of actual real life and to to give her to let her experience that, so some of the excitement and joy that came from it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that there was this really clear example of kind of a, I hate the word silver lining, but I can't think of another word right now. <laughs> but, you know, these friends who stood by you in this truly gut-wrenching time and had probably never had a friend have a cancer diagnosis. You guys are 25-ish at this point, and now they're helping you shave your head. Your parents are upstairs watching TV. This hugely grown-up thing is happening downstairs, and it's so unfair that it has to be happening. But then you get to trans, um, kind of transform that by fast-forwarding a few years and suddenly this really awesome thing is coming from it. Like what a gift to get to give that back to your friends. Yeah, so true. And I know exactly what you're saying with not knowing the right words because I I really bristle to 
with the kind of verbiage about cancer being a gift and that type of thing, I really don't do well with that. I've just seen it cause and experienced it caused far too much pain. Um, so I can't ever really get on board with that sentiment. But that said, so much of the time, once it's here, the child, you know, the cancer that is here, you have to deal with it. So much of the time, as people work through it, something beautiful actually happens. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's how people navigate their way through it. It's not the I don't think it's the cancer that it's the gift. It's it's how people it's what people do with it that Mm -hmm. can turn into something really unexpected. Um, For me, it was actually really transforming to write this piece because I was, I had nightmares about losing my hair every single night for years. Every night, there was some kind of traumatic nightmare about me going bald. And then I finally wrote this piece and the nightmare stopped. So it was, it was really, really helpful for me to process, um, everything that happened, you know, the, the film and all that aside, just on a personal level. Oh, wow. I don't think you've ever shared that, um, about the nightmares with me before, but it makes me want to ask you then. So I know that as part of your, experience of metastatic breast cancer that you had to shave your head again mm-hmm. for um for brain surgery. What was that experience like? Was it was it better that you kind of knew that you could get through that or did it make it actually even worse that you found yourself back to losing your hair again? It was so interesting going through it a second time and for me it was a lot better. Um because I knew that I could cope with it. I knew how to cope with it. I knew that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And so the second time around, I decided to, I was able to have fun with it in a different way. You know, the first time around, I was just sobbing the entire time they were shaving my head. The second time around, um, I knew that I was going to lose half of my hair on the side of my head. So I invited my best friend and her sister is also a good friend over like a week before instead of the night before. And they shaved the side of my head. And then my my friend's sister did her best to shave this like crazy sunburst design into the, (laughs) into the side of my head. And it was, we just decided to have fun with it. You know, I, I said, if I have to have a half-shaved head, I'll have a cool design for a week at a time. Like, why not? And I, I was actually able to, the fun of that day was was real and genuine. I wasn't trying to force it like the first time around. Mm. I like that shift and that realization. And maybe part of the being able to have fun in that moment was also having written so much and done so much work to kind of heal that first story. hundred percent. I think if I hadn't, I don't really know who I would have handled it the second time. If I hadn't written this and gone through the whole journey of, you know, writing it, getting it published in Wildfire, um, and then creating the short film, because a lot of healing happened during that time. 
And I'm, I don't think that I would have been able to approach the second time with the same, the same sense of like, it's going to be okay, you know, mm-hmm. that I could. Yeah, absolutely. So writing, you know, was a big part of your life in prior to your breast cancer diagnosis and, you know, beyond into the survivorship years. I am shocked to tell you, and maybe this will be shocking to you, but Monica, my production assistant, went back and counted that we published you in Wildfire 11 times over the years. (laughs) These are long things, but also short things. You used to be our resident yoga person when we were publishing um, yoga pieces for people to be able to do yoga at home. And so writing is a really big part of your life. And I know it's something that you've, you know, struggled with since, um, since the brain surgery we were just talking about. Would you say that writing has a role in your life right now? Oh man, I I wish it did. I I have such a weird relationship with writing because when I sit down and do it, it flows and I feel this immense sense of relief and then I want to keep doing it. But I keep finding that if I stop writing for any length of time, I have an enormously hard time picking it back up again. I just, it's almost like all the emotions and thoughts like build up inside my head to a point where I don't know where to start. And I, I, it feels overwhelming to sit down and start spilling them all out. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. I haven't written much since my metastatic diagnosis, haven't written much at all since the, brain surgery. Um, and almost every day I tell myself, okay, today you're going to journal. And I, I keep not doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, there have been times in my life when writing almost made it too real. Like I was putting down something onto a page that I I kind of didn't want to memorialize it, even though I know better and I teach people better. Like something about what you're saying is just making me think about those times when it was just too much real life mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't. I think that's a really good point. Um, and right now I'm actually in a really good place, like emotionally, and it's not that long ago, I was in a very dark place from cancer and also I was going through a terrible divorce and just there were deaths and all, just all the things were happening. And um, I really feel like I've climbed my way out of that and I'm in a happy place, a genuinely happy place now and a place where it feels important to say that cancer is not my whole life right now. Even though I'm so metastatic, and I still have to do regular treatments every three weeks, and I'm still at doctors all the time. I don't feel like my primary identity is a cancer patient. So that part of me feels really resistant to like voluntarily sitting down and spending my free time thinking about cancer and thinking about myself as a cancer patient. I'm kind of enjoying just doing other things. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up because, you know, when you and I met 10 years ago, um, going on 10 years ago, you had just received your metastatic diagnosis. Your recurrence had just happened prior to me meeting you, I think maybe a month before or just a few weeks before. And so that's a very long time to be living with metastatic um, disease. And so I'm curious for you to share like you said that that's not your main identity these days. So what what would you say is your identity now? Oh my gosh, I I have no idea how to answer that other than to say it feels miraculous that we can even have this conversation. I mean, when I was first diagnosed metastatic in 2014, so over 10 years ago, um I had pretty widespread meth and I was told very directly that I had two to three years to live, best case, and that I would be in chemotherapy, hardcore chemotherapy for the rest of my life. And they try and give me breaks, but that was the deal. And it's just been insane how lucky I have gotten because um, I've been actually stable on just Herceptin and Progetta, so biotherapy, not like the full-blown chemo. For almost this whole time, I had a little blip in there with the brain tumor, but I had brain surgery, brain radiation, and I've been clear since then. Um, So to have, I've, I've been given years of just life again, no evidence of disease. I can pretty much go about my life. Yes, I have some side effects. I'm more tired than other people, all that jazz. But it's, I think about this a lot because I don't know how to, how to talk about myself anymore. I don't feel like a terminal patient anymore, but technically that's my, that's my diagnosis. Um, My therapist recently said that I maybe should start thinking about it as I live with cancer which seems, I like that. So that's what I'm kind of, that's what's been rolling around in my brain lately. I like that. I think that, I don't know, it kind of like puts cancer next to instead of all around. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that orientation, just that small shift can be huge. Yeah. For such a long time, I didn't know, you know, when I met someone new, I didn't know how to, if, to say, saying I have cancer, I have metastatic breast cancer or any type of cancer feels like that's, I mean, that's the headline of my Mm -hmm. life, you know, and everything else is small print secondary to that. But that's not how my life feels most of the time anymore, Um, which is amazing. But to, to, if I meet someone new and to not talk about it feels like a huge omission because it is also a big part of my life. I can't, I can't say it's not. Um, so it's, it's this very tricky place to be in, but I think living with cancer is, might be a good solution for me. Mm-hmm. But you know, what a good problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Right? Like yeah. I wouldn't have believed I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's true. Like if someone had told me 10 years ago that I would be sitting here doing as well as I am, I would have been like, 
you're just trying to make me feel better. I'm going to die in a couple of years, you know? It didn't feel possible. And it's just been incredible that I just keep going. Yes. Well, and you and I have talked about this before, but one thing that I've really seen through you and, you know, getting to experience what a gift it is that time keeps moving on, research keeps moving on, advancements keep happening in cancer. I, You're on treatment now, I'm thinking of Progetta, that didn't even exist when you and I were first diagnosed. That's incredible. I know. Isn't that crazy that Progetta is like this huge blockbuster, successful drug? And yeah, it did not exist the first time I went through cancer. And if also, if I had been diagnosed a few years earlier, I might not have made a, what am I trying to say? Herceptin might not have been available to me. And it would have been a completely different picture for me, you know? And so at some point I realized that I used to have this idea that when you donate to research, it's just like, money going into a void and I know it's going to good things, but it's, but the, the actual fruit of that won't be for another like 20, 30 years. You know, that there's this very delayed time between doing the fundraiser and actually like seeing the new, the new drug and helping people. And at some point I realized that that is not the case with the breast cancer landscape, that, that, I am actually benefiting and continue to benefit from new therapies all the time. New therapies are coming out all the time. And that really, I, I realized that what I needed to focus on more than finding a treatment that worked for me forever was just being able to stay around long enough for the next treatment to come out, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it's incredible how fast the landscape is moving. Yeah, I, I really appreciate everything that you just said because in the breast cancer community, there's this saying, or maybe this is the, the world, you know, about breast cancer, but the saying of early detection saves lives. And I have found myself bristling at that a little bit because of you and other people that I love who are living with metastatic. And it sometimes feels like that sentence is discounting people who have been diagnosed with metastatic as if you did something wrong, you know, or you waited too long to get your diagnosis or something like that. But hearing you talk really jives with my, what I've come to believe now, you know, 11 years into my own being in this community which is that early detection of any kind, you know, whether this is an early stage diagnosis or a metastatic diagnosis, like at whatever point that diagnosis comes along, then we are talking about buying time, like whatever amount of time. Yeah. I think being diagnosed earlier rather than later or however you want to say it can sometimes open up more treatment options. Um but it's about buying time. And, and I agree with you that, um, you know, there's still a general sentiment, even if it's not said that, um, 
medicine, you know, getting a metastatic diagnosis is a death sentence and that people kind of want to avoid talking about that. That's not where most of the research money goes. And it's, it's really not the case anymore. I think it was the case a long time ago, but I'm not the only one like me out there. I know many people like me who are living with Mets long-term and living well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a really important thing to share and, and message that needs to get out there for people in our community, but also just for the world to understand that things are different now and you don't need to number one, make cancer your entire identity if you don't want to. And number two, give up on all of your hopes and dreams and making new memories. Exactly. I I struggled with that for a long time after my metastatic diagnosis because I felt like, how do I plan for the future when I'm being told I have no future? So, you know, even like how do I plan for a vacation a year from now? What's the point? I might not be around a year from now. And so slowly over time, realizing that I I can plan for the future because it's, you know, it's possible. And it's not just possible at this point. It's not going to be maybe likely. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Um, well, yeah. maybe another little, you know, quote unquote, silver lining in there is that even with metastatic illness, there is enough time to let the emergency of the diagnosis and the emergency of getting new treatment under your belt, once that kind of settles down and, you know, maybe there are flare-ups here and there that you have to be dealt with, but once you kind of get into the rhythm of living with it, maybe a little bit of the silver lining is finding the grace that is in there or the adjustment to making plans and finding hope and and letting it kind of move more to the back burner where you just, I shouldn't say just, but you're learning to live with it instead of it driving the car. Yeah, absolutely. And learning to live with the unknown and learning to live with the idea that there will be things that continue to pop up for me. I don't think that I'm going to be, even if I continue living for a long time, I think it's very unlikely I'm going to be no evidence of disease for all that time, you know? Um, but I no longer, I no longer feel like every recurrence or setback that pops up is a catastrophe. You know, I, it's happened enough times now where I, can cope with it a lot better and that has been that's i see i struggle with the word gift but that that has been a gift because it's made me just feel a lot it's hard to feel like you have ground to stand on that's stable when you're metastatic i think because everything is just shifting all the time and the rug keeps getting torn out from you but knowing that whether or not the red gets torn out from under me, I can keep feeling stable yeah. is huge. It's taken me a long time to get there, but um, I think, yeah, yeah, I've made a lot of progress on that front. And I just, I also want to say there's going to be people listening to this that have had a very different experience of metastatic disease or have loved ones with very different experience. Like, I know I'm extraordinarily lucky. Um, 
there are definitely other people like me, but there are people who have very different experience of metastatic and, you know, things move fast and, and not in a good way. Um, I think that the, t- the takeaway that I just want to say is that it's possible to, to have this experience, you know, it's not a guaranteed when you get a metastatic diagnosis that that's it for you. Mm-hmm. It's like very fair to hope for your future. Mm. I like the way you just put that. And I think, um, you know, as we kind of draw to a close too, part of the takeaway I want for the early stagers who are listening this to take away is something that you've given me just in our friendship, which is, I think, less fear of the unknown. Like as I've watched you live with metastatic um, breast cancer, as someone who is not living with that, I have been Ned for the 11 years now that I've been um, post-diagnosis. So amazing. I know. I'm really lucky for that. And I feel lucky to have you as my friend for a gazillion reasons, but in in the cancery sense, it's it's been a gift to me to get to see how you have managed living with MBC because it made it less scary for me. And that's one of my huge motivations with wildfires. I want us to use stories and storytelling to tell the real stories of of living a life in that glare of cancer that maybe take some of the fear away and lets there be these glimmers of hope where we can see that it is possible uh-huh. to live a good, fulfilling, joyful, beautiful life beside cancer. Yeah. I think when you have an example in your life or e- even just hear of an example of someone who is doing well, it puts a very different, the quality of hope that it allows you to feel is very different. It go for me, it goes from like almost, I used to think it was like almost, I was just convincing myself because I needed to feel hopeful. So I was convincing myself that's possible. Almost, almost felt like kind of delusional, but I needed, you know, just this like, you have to stay positive kind of thing. And then it goes, it flips to like, oh no, that's a very possible outcome. I cannot, that's actually a realistic thing for me to hope for it, it, you know? Yeah. And I was lucky that I had a friend too, who, um, but I was good friends and still good friends with her, but, um, she was diagnosed metastatic when she was 26 and, um, has lived for 30 plus years, no evidence of disease. And, and so when I, and and she's had her parents since, but is still going strong and living well. Um, so I think I was really lucky to have her in my life when I got my diagnosis because I had that example of the possible and the hope that like a real tangible sense of possibility and hope. Yes. Oh, I think that is so important. So important to have those examples. And even if someone is listening to this and you don't have a personal friend, you can find examples like Becky and like Becky's friend. And I'm thinking of others within the community who have lived a beautiful, 
rich, long life. Right, right off the bat, I'm thinking uh-huh. of Diana Keene, who's been living beautifully with inflammatory breast cancer. And we also have, um, oh my goodness, she just, uh, Tara Lisa. Tara Lisa has been living a long time. Yeah, there are lots of us. And lots. Yes. And you wouldn't know that from the statistics or if you're fresh into the into this world. So message going out to all of you listening who need that right now, that there, there are beautiful examples of living with cancer for a long, long time. Yeah. And just really quick, I know what you mm-hmm. but um, that's the importance of, sto- of storytelling, because I also think there's something very different from like you know, you got a metastatic diagnosis and you hear someone says, well, my my sister's friend's cousin got diagnosed and she's doing fine. And it just feels so abstract. And like, does that person even really exist? Versus being able to read or hear a detailed story of someone's experience with surviving and living with meth feels very different. I think it, it can give you um, a much more, a much more real sense of hope. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, as you mentioned, we do have to wrap up. I, every single time you and I start talking, we talk for literally hours. So we need to give these kind people a, a, a release from our conversation. Um, but it's such a pleasure to talk to you today. And I love that we we brought this around to hope. I wasn't, you know, I never know where our conversations are going to go on the burn. And this was so enriching and lovely, Becky. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's really fun. Absolutely. So you are Rebecca Hall. And the essay that you read today was called Hair. That was in the 2016 issue of Wildfire called Phoenix, our very, very first issue ever. And it published in our anthology, Igniting the Fire Within. And Becky, will you just say one more time where people can watch the film Bear? Yes, it's bearshortfilm.com. And you can watch the whole thing for free online. And it's beautiful. You guys definitely need to watch it. I love it so much. All right. Thanks again, Becky. Thank you. Well, I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young people like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. If you want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories, please hop over to wildfirecommunity.org. You'll find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, find our really robust archives, and you can take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. All right, here is your writing prompt. The prompt comes straight from Becky's story from the line, sometimes the cancer card is for playing. Sometimes the cancer card is for playing. So your prompt is to tell about a time that you played the cancer card or you thought about playing it, or maybe that you need to play it. Set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. And if you find that you write best with a good prompt, I've got tons for you over at wildfirecommunity.org free. Head on over and get yours now. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.